Welcome to the Keos Podcast, a series dedicated to bringing you the best claims and legal insight. Thank you for joining us. This is the first in a series of podcasts brought to you by the Legacy Team at Keos. I'm Shelley Hawker, an associate in the Legacy Team, and I'll try and guide you through today's topic, which is COVID-19 now and beyond which aims to discuss the implications of the COVID-19 vaccination programme and its implication in the care home setting and then wider implications within civil litigation, which is a timely podcast um, in the light of the speed at which COVID vaccination programme is being rolled out across the UK. Um, Approximately 500,000 vaccinations per day taking place at the moment with obviously elderly and vulnerable um, patients being a priority for the vaccine. I'm joined today by two of the partners within the Legacy team, Peter Kenworthy and Terry Zindi. Um, Peter, perhaps I could ask you to introduce yourself. Yeah, thanks, Shelley. Uh, I'm Peter Kenworthy. I am the head of the Keos disease team. And for those that aren't familiar with Keos, it is the largest dedicated disease and abuse team in the insurance market and currently comprises in excess of 150 team members. It's, it's my team that is leading the response to the COVID-19 pandemic both generally in relation to infection claims, but also in respect of the particularly challenging area of care homes. And this is what Terry will be addressing directly. Thanks, Peter. Um, Peter's also joined by Terry. If I could ask Terry to introduce yourself, please. Uh, Yeah, thank you, Shelley. I'm Terry Zindi. I'm a partner in the Legacy team with a particular interest in health and social care work. Thanks, Terry. Um, I believe that you recently wrote an article on the vaccination programme with reference to the care home setting. And I wondered whether you could just take some time to provide us with the overview of that article. Uh, Yeah, absolutely, Shelley. Um, The article itself is available on Keo's website if anyone is interested in uh, reading it. I think it's also available on LinkedIn. Um, But essentially, it was just a sort of an overview, a discussion of the vaccination program in a care home setting, how that interacted with the Mental Capacity Act and how vaccinations should be considered and assessed um, before um, they're implemented with individuals who can't consent or are fluctuating consent in relation to any treatment. Thanks, Terry. Could I ask a couple of questions on those points, if you don't mind? Um, What are the consequences for a care provider if they get the vaccination programme wrong? Um, Well, I suppose practical considerations really would, most immediate would be a delay in the vaccination programme. If you haven't obtained the appropriate consent and therefore don't have authorisation to continue the vaccination, then it probably can't go ahead. And in those circumstances, um, you'll be putting service users and staff at risk if they're uh, not being vaccinated. Uh, It can obviously lead to potential litigation. You can have involvement from the health and social care ombudsman, perhaps. And um, there's also other implications. There might be, you know, emotional upset or distress to family members who thought um, that their loved ones were going to be vaccinated and, and they weren't simply because we hadn't taking the appropriate steps beforehand. Thanks, Terry. Um, In respect of any civil claims, what allegations would you expect the care provider to face? Sure, I think the immediate one that springs to mind is a claim for assault. So if a vaccination occurs 
without the appropriate authority and without informed consent, then um, that could constitute an assault and a civil claim could be brought for that. Um, I think the Human Rights Act as well might also um, have uh, some force in these situations. So uh, an Article 5 claim of deprivation of liberty. So we do know that um, even uh, a deprivation of a limited period of time. So for example, if someone is restrained in order to forcibly, forcibly vaccinate them, then that could constitute um, a deprivation of liberty. Uh, in addition, there could be an Article 8 violation. That's a right to family life, uh, which is where a uh, situation perhaps where a service user is forced to continue in some form of isolation from their family and friends as a consequence of the care home just not having got this vaccination program right. And if found liable, what would the financial consequences be in your opinion? Well, that's really difficult to say, Shelley. I think it depends how egregious the act is, what the harm is, you know, harm suffered and the, and the circumstances. So certainly, you know, there may be some considerable damages arising if someone is forcibly vaccinated and that causes some form of long-term harm. But I think you've got to look beyond the claim value um, in this case and consider, you know, what are the wider implica implications? So reputational impact, What's the impact on that service user and their family? Um, what are the impacts of being involved in litigation for that uh, care home, just in terms of time? Um, and uh, obviously the um, the impact in terms of their their, their market um, share or value. So um, certainly there are wider concerns rather than just the pounds and pence of a claim, but. What I would say in summary is that there shouldn't be a rush to vaccinate if it's at the expense of the rights, welfare or dignity of any of the service users. Thanks, Terry. Um, so, Peter, in respect of wider employment, um, can an employer require its staff to be vaccinated? Yeah, um, well, I think we've all noticed the phrase no jab, no job recently entered the lexicon of uh, COVID terminology, um, but I think the, the point worth stating is that the insistence of, an, insistence of an employer to have employees vaccinated is perhaps more of an employment law question than a claims question. Um, what I'll be looking at in this podcast is the consequences for claims where an employee has refused the vaccine but goes on to contract COVID as a result of the employer's breach of duty. However, saying that, an employer's response to that refusal does potentially become an issue in determining subsequent liability. Can you expand on that point for us, Peter? Yeah, well, before doing that, I'll just articulate some assumptions that I'm making in, in, in this response. Firstly, there is an assumption that the vaccine is safe. And when I'm saying safe, what I mean is that it, the vaccine for COVID poses no greater risks than one normally sees from standard vaccinations such as for flu and furthermore that it is effective in preventing the development of significant symptoms. Secondly, the vaccine itself is assumed to have no dramatic reduction on the transmissibility of the virus by the vaccinated person. Now we have seen recent studies which helpfully and thankfully indicate that might that may be changing and that 
a vaccinated person will have or will pose a reduced risk of transmission. Now, if that does turn out to be the case, then how an employer responds to an employee's refusal to vaccinate may well change because it's not only a consequence for that individual employee, it may have knock-on consequences for others. And I think perhaps we could look at that issue in a subsequent podcast. For the moment, I'll be concerned with an employee who has refused the vaccine and what the ramifications may be for his or her subsequent claim for COVID infection. Going back to your original question, Shelley, about the employer's initial response, we do need to consider a rather old case of Withers and Perry Chain and a more recent case of Coxall and Goodyear. Withers is an old case from 1961, but has remained good law, having been affirmed by the Court of Appeal in Coxall, which itself is a case from 2002. These cases address whether an employer is in breach of its duty in allowing employment to continue where there is an ongoing and identified risk of injury. The the determining factor on whether an employer should have allowed an employee to continue doing work that exposes the employee to a risk of infection is, is an assessment of risk. In Withers, the court was of the view that the, where there is a slight risk, the desirability of continuing in the role was one for the employee, not the employer. And there was no duty on an employee, sorry, an employer, to find an alternative role or indeed dismiss. In Coxall, the stress stress is changed in that in that case, all the witnesses agreed that the risk of injury to the employee was such that he should not have continued to do the work he was being asked to do. On that case, the employer was negligent in allowing the claimant to continue and not finding alternative role or dismissing. So the difference between the two outcomes of Withers and Coxall was the level of risk being faced by the employee. So how does that fit in with COVID, Peter? Well, I suppose the first question is, what is the risk from COVID? The risk from COVID cannot be anticipated with any accuracy on an individual basis. The body's response to the virus depends upon a large number of factors which still need to be understood. But we do know that these, of course, include age, health, ethnicity, viral load, and no doubt we will discover many more as the science develops. The issue of the vaccine, however, does present some peculiarities which the courts will be asked to wrestle with. Firstly, the risk from COVID arises from social interaction at work rather than from the specific task of the job being undertaken. In addition, the chances are the claimant will probably have been undertaking the same role pre-vaccine availability and hopefully in accordance with government guidelines with regards to social distancing, etc. and PPA. Therefore, one can assume that the risks of injury will not have increased as a result of the vaccine becoming available. Rather more, the claimant has refused an opportunity to mitigate his own risk of injury. So that's slightly different to the circumstances faced in Withers and Coxall. You know, it's difficult to see why a court would find it was reasonable for an employee to remain in a role when there was no vaccine. But once the employee has refused the vaccine, there was then a duty to find an alternative role or indeed dismiss that employee. What would be the position then if that employee remaining in role subsequently contracts COVID as a result of the employer's breach of duty? Again, um, I I lead with another caveat, the the usual lawyer's get-out clause. In this scenario, we're not concerned here with the difficulties 
And I would suggest significant difficulties a claimant will face in establishing causation, where there may be multiple exposure scenarios, both inside and outside of work. We're going to assume that causation is established. So, Assuming we have a claim where the claimant is found to have contracted COVID as a result of his employer's failings at work, I think the starting argument for any defendant is the the question of valenti. In other words, did the claimant knowingly consent to the risks of COVID? Uh, And if he did, the argument is that he cannot pursue the claim. The defence of valenti, however, I'll put a caveat in another caveat, is strictly speaking not available to a breach of statutory duty. But at this point, Section 69 of the Enterprise and Regulatory Reform Act 2013 comes to our rescue. As you'll know, Section 69 means that a breach of health and safety regulation does not give rise to a cause of action. And therefore, this bar to a Valentine argument should not be an issue. In relation to common law obligations, um, i.e. negligence, court would have to accept that the refusal of the vaccine was unreasonable would have prevented contraction of COVID and that the claimant was fully aware and accepting of the risk. Now, at this point, I'd refer back to the assumptions of safety and effectiveness I started with at this section of questioning and the absence of a reasonable motivation for refusal of the vaccine on the part of the employee. Does contributory negligence play a part? Almost certainly should Valenti arguments fail. Now, this requires the court to accept that in refusing the vaccine, the employee was negligent with regard to his own health and safety. Again, the assumption being that the vaccine is safe and effective. So would a court accept there was an obligation or a duty on an employee to have the vaccine absent a significant reason not to? It's a significant question for the court to address. I suspect not. But there's also the question in relation to contributory negligence of the thorny issue of apportionment. How will the court assess the relative causative potency and blameworthiness of the claimant and defendant in that scenario? It's certainly becoming a Pandora's box. Are there any other issues arising from a vaccine refusal? Um, We could consider the obligation on the claimant to mitigate loss. Now, there is a duty upon those who've been cautiously injured to mitigate their loss, i.e., you know, there is an obligation to take all reasonable steps to minimise any resulting damage. And insofar as they, the claimant would have succeeded in doing so, the defendant is relieved of the obligation to compensate that claimant for the loss that could have been avoided by the Mitigation Act. In our scenario, If the employee had availed himself of the vaccine, he wouldn't have suffered injury. Now, whether or not a duty to mitigate can precede any tortious act or injury is, of course, questionable. But what I would suggest is that this is another example of where the courts are reluctant to award damages in cases where a claimant is viewed as not having acted reasonably. I think the best example of this is the case of Geist, where a claimant was refusing of medical treatment which posed a far lesser risk than the subsequent injury arising from the initial tort. So in light of those competing risks, and again we're back to risks, the court had deemed the claimant in that case as having failed to mitigate his loss. 
So we're back to the starting point of assessing competing risks between the risks of contracting COVID and the risks arising from the vaccine. And again, we're anticipating the course responses on this, that the, the risks arising from vaccination are probably far lower than the risks faced from COVID infection. Thanks, Pete. Um, so in summary, where does all this leave us then with regard to the vaccines and claims for COVID infection? Again, we're in a novel scenario. Fortunately, this is the first occasion when we have faced a pandemic such as COVID and it raises a number of difficult questions, not least in the legal sphere. But for all sorts of policy reasons, which are clearly apparent, I think it's difficult to see how a vaccine refused, Nick, and I intentionally used the pejorative term here, having significant sympathy from the courts. Now, the fundamental question is, how does any lack of sympathy become ultimately expressed by the courts or to what extent? Well, that is still to be determined. We need to wait and see. Thank you both for your insight. Um, it's been um, a really interesting topic. Um, so thank you to everybody for listening. Um, if you do have any queries or you'd like to discuss any of today's topics further, then please don't hesitate to get in um, contact with our team, either Peter or Terry, and their details, um, contact details can be found on our website um, and a copy of Terry's article um, will also be in the same location. Thanks very much, everyone.